Hey, before we start our podcast, I want to tell you about a few conversations that we've got coming up with the Connecticut Mirror that you may want to check out. You can find them all at ctmirror.org events. Coming up on June 29th at 7 o'clock on Zoom, we've got a panel discussion called Navigating Truth in a Changing Media Landscape. We'll be talking about fact and fiction in the news today. You can join Sassy Larnietta from The Day of New London, Marie Shanahan from UConn, and John Silva from the News Literacy Project. Again, please join us for that. It's next Tuesday, June 29th. And then the following week on Tuesday night, Linda Greenhouse is back with us. She is, of course, the longtime Supreme Court watcher and reporter for the New York Times. She's going to be breaking down this year's Supreme Court session. You can bring your questions for Linda. Again, find out more and sign up at ctmirror.org events. Okay, here we go. This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining me. The Connecticut legislative session and a short special session have concluded, and it seems that in many ways, this land of steady habits has emerged as a changed place. Yesterday, Governor Ned Lamont signed a bill legalizing marijuana. It's a deal that took many years and almost fell apart at the end. Lawmakers and the governor also agreed on a budget deal that didn't raise taxes, but certainly put the issue of tax fairness front and center, shining a light on divides within the Democratic Party. And the biggest piece of environmental legislation in years, the Transportation and Climate Initiative, failed. But the state did tackle climate and waste issues in a substantial way. Last night, I talked about these issues and more with Connecticut Mirror reporters Mark Pazniokas, who covers the Capitol, Keith Vanoff, who covers the budget, and Jan Ellen Spiegel, who covers the environment. It was our 2021 legislative wrap-up event on Zoom, and we were joined by many viewers who asked questions about what did and didn't get done. I started our conversation by asking Paz about his biggest takeaway from a session that started during lockdown and ended with a historic piece of legislation. That would have to be the scramble at the end on how social equity licenses would work for legalized cannabis. There was a lot of behind the scenes uh, brinkmanship um, efforts to figure out how to provide uh, access to this new industry um, on the behalf of people who are from areas that were disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs. But it got very intense and I have to say it got very personal. Um, and instead of doing my standard uh, legislative wrap-up at the end, uh, I really spent uh, days just looking at that. Um, it nearly uh, derailed this legalization effort, really, when it was just at the finish line, which would have been extraordinary. Um, and, it, and it was a little disconcerting for a lot of the advocates because the biggest impact of legalizing cannabis is really... Uh, the erasure of records of thousands and thousands of people who have arrests for marijuana, as well as avoiding people being arrested in the future for marijuana. And instead, the focus was, again, on who's going to profit from this. And it, it got pretty hairy at the end. So that right now, granted, it's, it's fresh, it's top of mind. But I think that's the thing that's going to stick with me. Um, that and the fact that, you know, Connecticut is, is you know, we're, we're full on uh, with cannabis, uh, sports betting, 
online casino gambling. So this is all a little startling given when I arrived in Connecticut, you couldn't buy a six pack on Good Friday. <laughs> yeah, Connecticut, it's changed a little bit, hasn't it? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll dig into that just a little bit. And of course, uh, Mark was there for the marijuana bill signing today. There's an awful lot to talk about there, to talk about in sports betting. Um, Keith, how about you? I mean, top line here, what was the big takeaway from this, from this session? Thought about this, John, you, you might describe it as what did happen or you might describe it as what didn't happen. I see the glasses half full. And that was the tax fairness debate in, you know, not just in the land of steady habits, but to put it bluntly in the hedge fund state and in the state with this type of wealth and the, these types of pockets of poverty that has dodged this issue for so long. When you consider the more than robust tax fairness debate that went on that challenged, I would argue, a fiscally conservative Democratic governor that normally would never have gone on. At the same time, about $6 billion in federal money was pouring into the state. The most progressive of progressives would have said, this isn't the time. We don't need to talk about it. We have this federal money. Um, I don't think you'd have seen the debate that we saw this year were it not for what happened over the last 12 to 18 months, uh, the pandemic, uh, Black Lives Matter, um, you've seen something that even though um, the inroads the progressive movement made, if you look at the finished product, might appear to be small, I think we're substantial. And I think it's something that's going to continue to press Governor Lamont and the legislature um, in the very near future, as in the next two years. And let me turn to you, Jan. I'll, I'll let you take it away in, in terms of the things that did or didn't get done in the beat that you cover. The real big takeaway for you from this session. Well, the thing that didn't get done is absolutely it. It was a stunning meltdown of what environmentalists called the, the biggest climate change legislation in years that would have uh, helped lower um, transportation emissions in this transportation and climate initiative and the way it was portrayed by the opposition in what I would call almost a Trumpian matter put manner put out what you want to say and that was the notion that this was a gas tax which it is not and the environmental community and the governor's office and everyone else just could not combat that and something that was kind of a given. I mean, this was just enabling legislation. It wasn't like there were any details. It was just, okay, we're going to hit the start button now. That's it. And uh, everybody at the start really thought, oh, this is a no-brainer. Well, it was definitely not a no-brainer. Um, it subsumed everything else. And there was some uh, there was a, an interesting group of initiatives that did get through and almost got lost in the shuffle um, along with the bottle bill, a bunch of other things pertaining to how we're going to fix the waste system. So there was this, a bit of a yin-yang there, but TCI, Transportation Climate Initiative, without a doubt, <laughs> that was the big one. Yeah, we'll, we'll get back to that in just a, just a little bit too. And some of these, these waste bills, which is a big issue in Connecticut as well. Well, Mark, let, let's go back to earlier today. The marijuana law gets passed in July marijuana is legal in effect in Connecticut, but we're not going to really have a retail sales system set up until sometime late 2022. 
if if even then, maybe you can just flesh out exactly what Connecticut has signed and what is still to come because one of the biggest arguments for marijuana legalization has been we're going to set up some sort of a marketplace here. We're going to be able to tax it and compete with states like Massachusetts that are selling it all over the place and putting up billboards in Connecticut saying drive north and buy your your weed. We're not going to have anything like a marketplace anytime soon. No, we're not. Um, so to break it down simply, um, on yeah, July 1, you can legally possess an ounce and a half of marijuana on your person and up to five ounces if it's secured in your home or uh, locked in your car. You know, a couple of things. Uh, it doesn't change the clean air laws. It doesn't change the smoking laws. Places where smoking is banned, you shouldn't be lighting up a, a joint either. Uh, so state parks, uh, they will be banned. Um, th- this bill actually expands smoking prohibitions. Um, hotels will be banned from offering uh, smoking rooms. Uh, there are going to be further restrictions on smoking in or around the workplace. So, you know, that's kind of an interesting aspect to this that didn't get a lot of attention. Um, but the stuff that's going to take longer to develop is going to be um, there's well first of all the governor and legislative leaders have got to appoint people to a 15 member social equity council and they're going to have a lot of work to do they're going to have to uh, hire somebody to conduct a study about uh, really looking at the extent to which um, a legal cannabis uh, industry sh- should and can be an instrument to adjust racial and economic injustice. Um, there are a lot. Of, there's a regulatory structure that has to be put together at the Department of Consumer Protection, and the licensing will take time. Um, the expectation is that there will be a deluge. The four commercial producers in the medical marijuana business, if they're willing to write a check for $3 million each, they can convert their licenses uh, to also produce recreational marijuana. And uh, clearly they've been geared up for that. One of the producers, you know, has quadrupled its space in recent years. So, you know, they're, they're certainly gearing up for that. But it's going to be end of 2022 before there's really a market. And then for the folks who are dying to do homegrown, you're going to have to wait till July of 2023, unless you are one of the folks who have a medical marijuana card. Uh, You'll be able to grow your own uh, in October, assuming you can find seeds or suitable cloning plant uh, material. The, the, the racial and economic justice piece of it is, is as you mentioned at the top, some of the biggest hang-ups. You, you talked about that debate getting very, very personal. And there's a lot to unpack in there. I mean, one, one piece of it is that other states that have legalized have had some of these same troubles. We know that in Massachusetts, they've been trying to make social equity a piece of how they give out licenses. It hasn't necessarily come to fruition because the capital isn't always there. It can be very hard to ramp up. Maybe you can just take us through that piece of it because that's one of the most important parts of this legislation and one of the reasons why, one of the sticking points really, in why it took so long to get done. Half of the licenses, and there are licenses for all level of this, you know, cultivation on a major level, um, micro cultivators, uh, packagers, people who are going to be licensed to transport 
transport the marijuana as well as license to sell it at retail. And half of the licenses for all levels are going to be reserved for social equity applicants. Social equity applicants will be people who are from, uh, they either grew up in or have lived for a significant amount of time in a census tract that has been disproportionately impacted by uh, cannabis arrest and, and other metrics. And that's going to be up to the Social Equity Council. We don't know precisely what those uh, census tracts are, but there'll be a great benefit for those folks and that, um, you know, we'll kind of go to the front of the line as far as getting their applications reviewed. But what we don't know is how many licenses will there be? Um, to what extent will the state be able to um, encourage uh, joint ventures between social equity applicants and, and major business interests? Um, you have the need for capital, you have the need for expertise. Um, and so that's really, I think, going to be the continuing story for the next year or so is how good a job does Connecticut do at encouraging that, of promoting that kind of thing. Um, the track record in other states is not great. Um, anytime where you set things like this up, there's always, uh, you know, the abuses that go on where somebody ends up as a front for somebody who's got a lot of money and it's a way to short circuit the, the process. So I think, you know, you're going to see a lot of stories like that as to who is getting the, these licenses, um, what partnerships do they put together. Then the other piece of it is ultimately when the revenue starts coming in, it's where will that revenue be spent? Um, three quarters of it is supposed to go to addressing social equity issues. Um, it's not just going to go into the general fund. It's not going to just go into funding for municipal aid. It's supposed to be specific stuff. And then the other 25%, it's supposed to be um, for preventive work on, on drug abuse and addiction. I, I think a lot of people would look at that and say, yeah, but I mean, a million years ago, Connecticut benefited along with a lot of other states from just billions of dollars in tobacco settlement money that was supposed to be spent in a very specific way. And it's just one of many ways in which Connecticut gets money that is supposed to be spent in a very specific way. And then it is later not spent in that way. What are the safeguards put in place by this legislation that indeed it's going to go where it's supposed to go? There is no prohibition on one legislature undoing the works of a previous legislature. So whatever, uh, you know, unless you stick it in the constitution or if you figure out something clever like volatility caps or, or whatnot, spending caps, the magic word in the General Assembly is notwithstanding. Notwithstanding anything that's ever been done before, this is what we're doing now. And that's how you see a lot of bills begin. Um, so, no, there's, there's no guarantee. But I think there, it will be this, the social and political pressure to go down this route um, for a while. Now, the temptation in Connecticut has always been you run into a bad budget situation. And that's when you know, these funds get diverted. Um, you know, one of the funds that when Connecticut got into gambling with the tribes, the uh, Pequot Mohegan Fund, I mean, that started out as really taking a lot of the slots revenue for municipal aid. Mm -hmm. And then over the years, it was less and less and less used for that purpose and more and more and more that went into the, the general fund. 
this is a good transition to Keith here. And, and Keith, just very quickly, a, a lot of people over the years, as we've talked about the issue of marijuana legalization, they've said, well, you know, we want to solve the state's budget problems, legalize weed, and that's going to solve all the problems because of all this flow of money coming in here. So, I mean, granted, we're not going to have this marketplace open until at least the end of next year, but just give a quick reality check on that, Keith, for us, if you would. Yeah, just, I, I, I that's probably the most important thing, John. I mean, it, it's all about perspective. We can sit here and talk about, you know, hey, could, could marijuana in the first year bring in $40 million and get up to $60 million or maybe even $70 million a year um, in the scope of a $22 billion budget in a state that has $91 billion in long-term unfunded liabilities. We're talking about a drop and a drop and a drop of a bucket. It doesn't mean it's not worth debating, but there's no marijuana taxation system that could solve the state's problems, even if the money were going into the general fund as opposed to as Paz laid out, um, going into the um, uh, heavily affected communities and a certain extent into um, healthcare initiatives. Um, I also just wanted to res- respond to just one other thing you and Paz were talking about. It's the only thing that Paz said that I semi don't agree with. And that was when he said, you know, maybe if something's safe and you, you know, maybe if you put it in the constitution, I know he was just being facetious, even then it's not safe. There is no pocket of money that the legislature can't get at it if they want. If you really want to make sure, like the tobacco settlement money, which just totally props up the general fund, it is not earmarked in any substantial amount for healthcare initiatives at all. If you really want to make sure your compass is working correctly, you don't have to get a new compass. You've got to get rid of the magnet that's sitting right next to it that's pulling it off course. In this case, it's our pension debt. When, we, when we've got our pension debt under control, the legislature will stop raiding every other source of money under the sun to deal with it. Well, to, to that point, we got a question here from Scott who says, do you think the governor of the General Assembly will tackle pension reform before the 2022 election? Yeah, the, the short answer I, I wrote to Scott was no. Unfortunately, um, and I, I assumed, by the way, what Scott meant was not necessarily restructuring payments, which we do left and right now. That's become a new form of just deferring pension contributions. But if you're saying you think you need, uh, you need to see the benefits that are paid out scaled back, I don't see the, the, the Democratic majority in the legislature or the governor or another Democrat touching that with a 10-foot pole between now and Election Day. So one thing I wanted to talk to you about, Keith, is that it seems kind of remarkable that coming out of this pandemic, in which it just seemed like doom and gloom, we had businesses closing, we had hundreds of thousands of people out of work, Connecticut seems to have come out of this problem in pretty good fiscal shape, at least for now. So I'll ask you for another reality check on that. I mean, how real is this moment for Connecticut where we have this record-setting rainy day fund. It seems as though our tax receipts are coming in. We're getting a lot of money from Wall Street. Are we in as good of financial health at the end of this legislative session as it looks like? Uh, we talked about this at a couple of staff meetings, and I, I said, we, you know, if we could, you know, with apologies to Dickens, if we could title this, you know, the worst of times, the best of times. Um, we are right now enjoying some really high quality fiscal Novocaine. And that is what's numbing all the pain that's going on right now. 
Um, we had, since the pandemic began, basically a 30% jump in the stock market. You didn't just have the bull market of all bull markets. You have federal unemployment relief, which has actually kept our state income tax receipts tied to paycheck withholding flat. And just to give you some perspective, they should be way down. We lost 120,000 jobs in the Great Recession of 2007 to 2010. At the height of the pandemic, we were down 390,000 jobs. As of last week, we still had about 170,000 people getting weekly unemployment benefits. But yet, and, and people forget most of the, the, those benefits they're getting, including the federal uh, um, additions, that's subject to taxation. That is what's keeping our coffers afloat. That is the Novocaine, that along with the bull market that's been going on. When the federal money runs out and when the unemployment benefits expire, and with our luck, that's when a bear market will occur at the same time. There is a plunge that's coming. The problem is we still don't know exactly how bad it is, but what we do know is the underlying economic indicators are still very weak. We saw, and, and I'll just wrap with this point, when Fred Karstensen at UConn comes out with a study that says it could take us 10 years to recover from the pandemic. And our best bet to do that is to put every penny of federal money, not into the state budget, but into the economy, which we didn't do. And then a week later, his economic polar opposite, Don Kleppersmith, who was Jody Rell's chief economic advisor, comes out and says, Fred Karstensen is right on and our gross state product is in the tank. That's, I think you can find that pretty much in Revelation. When Karstensen and Kleppersmith agree, <laughs> it's time to get your affairs in order. Here, We're come, in trouble. here come the locusts. That, that's... <laughs> and, so, and look, and, and, and Jan Ellen Spiegel will tell you, the, the planet is warming up. The cicadas are coming out even sooner than every 17 years now. Right, Jan? I mean, this is, it's, it's the plague times. It's, it's the end of days. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get back to Keith's doom and gloom sermon in, in just a moment. Um, so, Jan, this, this transportation and climate um, initiative plan, important to note, as you say, you know, this was not like summed up in a, it's a gas tax. No, this was a, a, a much bigger plan that was meant to cut emissions. It was also part of a regional strategy. It's part of a big national movement. I think one thing that's interesting about this is that the TCI is a, a regional plan, but it wasn't widely adopted by all the states. And I, did that have something to do with why this didn't get more traction in Connecticut? Well, first, I'm going to correct you there in, t in the terminology of widely adopted. Mm. We are not at that phase yet. And there was vast amounts of misinformation out there and Think back to the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, yeah. which actually has been on the books since about 2008. It was designed to reduce emissions from power plants. A lot easier to do. Power plants just sit there. You put a carbon charge on them. And actually, ratepayers in this state do pay a little more for their power and always have um, as a result of that. And it has reduced emissions quite a bit. 
a lot of reasons for that, but not the least of it is just that charge. And it has brought in over the states involved something north of $4 billion in those years. That was a climate initiative. The Transportation and Climate Initiative was conceived of over 10 years ago to do the exact same thing with transportation. No one was sitting around saying, oh, we can get more money for the transportation fund. It was always a climate plan and, oh, hey, we can get some money out of it because we've shown this works. And there is a model to base it on in that California has kind of a cap and trade system not dissimilar from either of these. Um, And they're in effect. Their uh, uh, power sector went on first. A couple of years later, the transportation sector came on. And they wrestled with a lot of the issues that come up in transportation versus power, which is that transportation cuts across all sectors. And again, you're going to have to make some accounting for the uh, uh, economic equity in the social justice community, because if you can't afford a new car that is um, uh, going to replace your your you know twenty year old gas guzzler out in California, you're driving some ancient tractor out on the farm. Um, the slight increase in gas prices that will be part of this could hurt you. So there was always some. There was always massive amounts of thought about what you do about this. Um, And that is what was seized on as being this quote unquote gas tax. In Mm -hmm. terms of adopting it, this has been a multi-stage process. The same way Reggie, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, was a multi-stage process. Some states came in at the beginning. Some states came on later. Uh, New Jersey famously got out. They got a new governor. They got back in. Um, Virginia's in. North Carolina's getting in. You know, this is all, Pennsylvania's getting in. This is all under Reggie. This was at a phase where the facilitators of TCI were looking at how are we going to structure this broadly And if you sign on to this broad structure, then you can move to the next stage Mm -hmm. and come up with a very state-specific plan, which is exactly how Reggie worked. Each of the states had state-specific plans, and they came on when they were ready. And late last year, three states and D.C., among the 12 states or so that have been part of this, said, okay, we're ready. Um, where we would like to go put our plan together. Um, Connecticut and Rhode Island happen to have a system where you need enabling legislation, as I said before, that says, okay, ready, set, go. You can now start figuring this plan out. And that enabling legislation, not any details of the plan, that enabling legislation is, is what didn't make it through. And just as a side note, I... There's discussion about now what do we do, but that has not been determined yet. All the other states are still in this. They didn't get out. Any of those headlines that you saw that said uh, only three states left, not true, not even close to true. All the other states are still working on this. And when they're ready to get in, they will they will get in and start dealing with their plan. And and one way to think about it is is Connecticut's not out of it. They just haven't 
set up the implementation of it, right? And this is important. Keith, I know that you want to jump in on this real quick. Thanks, John. Real quickly, what really sank TCI, and I agree with everything Jan said, just in addition, it was a weird political coalition of the far right and the far left. The people you'd expect to oppose TCI because they saw it as a tax hike did. But the people on the far left who were very frustrated that Governor Lamont would not support larger tax breaks for the poor and for the middle class said, well, then fine. If we can't talk about those tax, that type of tax relief, we're not going to talk about tax cuts. And the TCI sort of fell victim to that. It was a weird coalition. I didn't really get that sense, honestly. Um, there was one group that sort of backed off a little, but the bulk of the left-leaning environmental groups, um, you know, w they were on board. They wanted it badly, very, very, very. They were in the negotiations with the governor, Jan. It was, it was the leadership on the left. People like Senator Lewis. Okay. Yeah, okay. Well, if we're, if we're not talking taxes, we're not raising gas taxes on poor residents. I think Senator Looney likes the TCI. He didn't like Governor Lamont's lack of flexibility on tax relief for the poor. Some of the active labor unions um, were not helpful to TCI. You know, there was a, a one day where there were a bunch of TCI activists outside the Capitol, as well as uh, SEIU, who represent, you know, low income uh work a lot of low-income workers in, in the service industry and, and nursing homes and the two groups were talking and the the union guys normally would be with them but on this one they said no we can't we we don't we view it as less than progressive as far as the potential impact on gasoline prices so i think keith's right on that one that it just it it was a confluence of things that just didn't work and then you also have the hangover from 2019 where you know, tolls uh, really left an impression. That campaign for passage of highway tolls was so poorly handled by the Lamontan administration in its early months. And that really did, uh, I think, rattle people. And I think there's a little bit of hangover, whether it's whether it's fair or unfair, that is, is kind of splashed onto uh, TCI. The, the core of the opposition also to some degree inferred that this was all designed because tolls had failed and we're going to um, get our money this way, when in fact this has been in the works for, as I said, over 10 years. Um, the other thing um, in terms of labor and some of the folks, um, the, the more liberal wing in the, in the legislature was there was this real lack of understanding what was going what was going on and i i always sort of want to take a broad view in that this was as often happens in the connecticut legislature viewed very narrowly in the short term to um say that um you know it's going to cost us money the long view of what reducing emissions can do to save you money down the road. It just never sees the light of day. Uh, the notion that it might have some impact on healthcare costs because, because of a reduction in asthma 
or save you commuting time because people will maybe get off the road because they they don't want to uh, be paying that extra money. That long-term sense is just so often absent, and it was absent this time. <laughs> yeah, as, as, as Keith uh, often talks about, the long-term view about Connecticut's future is something that uh, lawmakers very rarely take up. So, so Keith, I want to get back to something you, you raised at the top. I mean, it came up in what Paz was just talking about. It certainly came up in the conversation Jan was having about, about TCI. This, this larger tax fairness debate in the state, We, amongst the many things that happened over the course of this pandemic, we saw the state come out in pretty good fiscal health. But we saw the billionaires of the state and of the country come out in really good uh, fiscal health. And so I think it just amped up this call from an awful lot of folks in the states to say, we need to figure out a way to make a tax structure that is a little bit fair. How far did people get in that conversation? Where, where did it land by the end of the session? The, the, the fact that we were talking right up until the end about, well, is there something we can do in terms of a capital gains surcharge on the wealthy? Even though everybody knew Governor Lamont was gonna fight that thing, um, I don't think you would have seen the bonding that we saw for the urban communities, about $175 million a year for five years, if we hadn't already played that card, John Fonfara's card saying, I want to do two income tax surcharges on the rich, one on their capital gains and also this idea of a consumption tax. If they hadn't tossed out there the idea of a digital media ads tax and had the Speaker of the House Matt Ritter, who's generally been the one helping the governor get his way, saying, hey, this digital media ads tax makes a lot of sense to me. I think they forced Governor Lamont to see, to kill the things he was most afraid of, he was going to have to give ground like he hadn't before. And the fact that, quite frankly, many in the progressive camp are still ticked off, still feel that um, all the talk that we heard last summer about Black Lives Matter was not backed up with substance um, is why I called this debate still a success. Jan, at the top of the program, you were talking about a few things that got done, things that didn't get done. One piece of it, of course, had to do with TCI and climate change, but there was a lot of, well, let's just call it waste that was part of this legislative session. What, what got done in terms of the way we get rid of the stuff we don't need anymore? A trajectory to changing a broader system got started. And um, um, I think you have to remember that in the, at, at, in the height of the pandemic, uh, with the, the main trash to energy plant, you know, ready, it was just called off entirely. It's just not going to exist in any form that we know. Uh, Katie Dice, the commissioner of the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, pulled together uh, over about a three-month period, which is pretty compressed, several dozen municipal leaders, other leaders, and they, they talk trash. Um, four working groups, and they really work through sort of how you reform the system. What goes first? What goes second? What's the order of how you do things? And um, some of those pieces got put in place. Uh, the, the overall um, notion is that you get the stuff out that you don't want going to a burn plant or you don't want going into a landfill. So 
they tightened up the food waste requirements that this state has. And that's always considered get the food waste out of the trash. It weighs a lot. So if you're paying to have it dumped, it's going to cost you more. If you're burning it, it doesn't burn. It's wet. Um, and so the um, amount of food waste certain institutions create, if they are within 20 miles of a facility that can deal with it, uh, that amount has gone down. They cut it in half. So more entities will have to do that. They didn't increase the mileage, which there was a move to get it to 30 miles, which would have really pulled in more. They didn't add some things to the mix of what would have to do it, especially educational institutions, although so, a lot of universities do it already. And, but that and, was a step to getting the food waste out. And, and explain again qu quickly, if you would, about, about the 30 miles. What, what do you mean? If you are within 20 miles of uh, some sort of a, a, a composting facility, whether it's an anaerobic digester or outdoor composting, you have to get your food waste. In, if you're among a certain category of businesses, you have to get rid of your food waste that way. The goal was uh, the administration more or less wanted to increase that to 30 miles, which would make this make folks have to travel further. And there was a lot of pushback on that. Uh, so that never got through. But there's going to be more food waste, at least from um, the commercial sector, not going into the trash. So that's number one. Another big one was, you know, after years and years and years and years, the bottle bill um, will be updated. Again, this is a way you get stuff out of the trash that you don't want in the trash. And it was all kinds of stuff were, were getting into the recycling bin that was making recycling more difficult to deal with. So in a couple of years, there will be a lot more bottles that are um, going to be able to uh, be returned. The price will go up, which will incentivize people, presumably, to actually get their money back as opposed to stick it in the blue bin. Um, there is money behind that and the food waste component and the, the waste system broadly to begin some pilot projects to figure out how you're going to handle all this. And um, on the bottle bill front, I mean, there's some really interesting models out on the West Coast. Oregon, for example, mm -hmm. does some really interesting things with how they get rid of their bottles, whether Connecticut will get that creative and not just, oh, let's clean up the, the redemption centers. Um, I don't know. They did one other thing that kind of snuck through that a lot of people didn't notice. One of the things with recycling that Connecticut has not done that m many other states in the region do do is figure out a way to deal with recycled, to use recycled content, which would in turn spur companies to begin to process that kind of stuff. Pennsylvania has dozens of companies that do that kind of thing because they have mandates on using recycled content. We've had a very small paper recycled content mandate within government, which has never been enforced. And uh, the, the legislation that went through said, um, okay, DEP, we want you to start figuring out um, ways we can use recycled content so we can build businesses around it. One of the waste bills didn't go through that would basically increase um, the, not, the types of companies that are responsible for their owned, own end-of-life um, uh, product. We do it in this state already with mattresses. We do it with paint. 
one of the big ones that was in the legislation that failed uh, would have been tires. And that's huge. So that did make it through. But you can see the trajectory. Let's start getting all this stuff out of the, the waste so we can start looking at the bigger picture uh, from a reasonable standpoint. And in the meantime, loads of towns are mm. beginning to experiment with this stuff on their own. So the movement is in that direction. Keith, a last thing for you. What's something right now, as this legislative session ends, a uh, state budget passed, what, what do you look at as a reporter that's the next thing that, that you are watching for as we look ahead toward the next time lawmakers convene in Hartford? I'm going to start to, to, to see them laying out the, the seeds of a potential re-election budget. I know Governor Lamont has not announced yet what he's doing, but... I've been following budgets for about 30 years and everything so far has been to position himself as you would expect to run for reelection. I think he's going to have to come up with a good message. If he's going to try to next February, try to offer some tax relief um, that doesn't necessarily benefit the same communities that were begging for it and got turned down this past session. But I think he's going to want to try to offer something next February um, that's very broad based. And, and, and that's what I'll be watching for. And important to note, Paz, that this, you know, it's very real that all these things do happen within a political environment. And yes, the, the next elections are just around the corner. He's, he's well positioned. And, you know, unless a strong candidate really came out of nowhere to challenge him in a primary, uh, I don't think, I think he'll be able to resist pressures on tax reform next year. After, if he's reelected, I think you're going to see a, a hard push because it's going to coincide with uh, the end of these the federal dollars. And then the question will, you know, the pressure will be there to do something. Um, but, you know, he's been pushed to the center by the left and by the right. And that's where he is at his most comfortable. Um, so again, I, it's hard to imagine somebody emerging with less than a year to challenge him for the Democratic nomination, particularly when you look at the fact he does not have to worry about, you know, raising money. So there will be some grumbling on the left about about his stubbornness when it comes to taxes. But when it comes to re-election, you know, you have uh, the Senate Republican leaders saying things like the governor certainly stood tall on taxes. So in a general election, you know, that's not a bad place to be. That's Capitol Bureau Chief Mark Pazniokas, Keith Faniff, who covers the budget, and Jan Ellen Spiegel, who covers the environment for the Connecticut Mirror. This is all from our live Zoom event that happened last night. It was gently edited for podcasts, but if you want to see the whole thing, you can go to ctmirror.org slash events. While you're there, you can sign up for our event next week. It's on Tuesday, June 29th, called Navigating Truth in a Changing Media Landscape, and also our event on July 6th with Linda Greenhouse as she breaks down this year's very big Supreme Court session. Thanks so much to Kyle Constable for producing our event and to executive editor Beth Hamilton. George Mastrianis and Dave Swanson performed our Steady Beats, and they were recorded at Legend Studios in Avon, Connecticut. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk to you soon.